First Peter, chapter 2. Hopefully my tongue-tiedness will end. Uh, what we're going to, well, the scripture text is really part of a larger text this morning, so uh, let me read that as well, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling as a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we might rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it in all earnestness, to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So there I was, <clears throat> watching the Pac-12 tournament a few weekends ago. And uh, I don't know what ESPN did to Bill Walton, but I don't like it. Um, they had the, during the uh, Wildcats-Ducks uh, game, uh, they had this, these strange vignettes during timeouts. And in one of them, you have uh, Bill Walton interacting with the Oregon Ducks mascot. And it took place in a variety of places around, I guess, the hotel where they were staying. And it was just really bizarre and strange because he's abusing the Ducks mascot. And I'm kind of going, this is really weird. But in the midst of it, what Bill Walton does is he takes a book and he says, this is the best book, the most important, or no, sorry, this will be the most important book you will read. What in the world are you here for? And he, first he gives it to the duck mascot, but then he takes it away and stuffs it down the mascot's face. It was just completely bizarre. Because on one hand, I didn't know, and maybe it's not true, that Bill Walton may be a Christian. 
because the book he was giving him is actually the book by Rick Warren about what you're here for. It was rather strange, as I mentioned. What you're here for. That is what Peter has been getting at as we've been looking uh, through this chapter in his letter. And we talked a lot about that last week with this idea of being built into a living temple uh, because Jesus, the living stone, makes us living stones as he builds us together into this spiritual house. And not only that, but also builds us into a priesthood. And that idea continues on as we continue in verses 9 and 10 this morning. Our big idea is that we have been privileged by God's mercy in order to proclaim God's mercy. So there we are. There we have it. We've been privileged by God's mercy to proclaim God's mercy. That's what you're here for. Not just this morning, but every day. Let's start with the fact that we are united to Christ and have, and there, sorry, therefore we are a privileged people. Peter, again, is contrasting uh, those who have rejected the cornerstone, who have rejected Jesus, who was chosen and precious by God himself, but rejected by the builders, and uh, talks about their disobedience. He starts off this section here with, but you, in contrast to them, you, you who find him precious, you who have been brought near, what does he say about you? that though those people were destined or appointed to disobedience, you, on the other hand, are a chosen race. He once again affirms this idea that we saw in chapter 1 of our election in Christ Jesus, that we have been chosen to partake of this amazing salvation that Jesus has won, that we don't accidentally find ourselves uh, united to Jesus Christ, but ultimately we are united to Jesus Christ because God has chosen to join us to Jesus Christ. Race. Not quite the best translation in my estimation. It could perhaps be better understood as a people, as a tribe, as a nation, or even as a family. But it talks about this idea of those who have common roots. And so this is a chosen family. And we've talked a little bit about how from chapter one that, you know, because we have been born again into God's family by the power of the Holy Spirit, because we've been joined to Jesus who was raised from the dead, we're God's family. It's a chosen family. We've been appointed for this. We have a common root, but it's not the common root we normally think about. We normally think about blood as being the common root. Or common language, common customs, all of those sorts of things. But here the commonality is Jesus Himself. We are a people that belongs to Jesus, and therefore we are a chosen group, a, tro- a chosen tribe, a chosen nation or family. But that's not, Peter's not done, you see. Because then he adds that we are a, or, you know, to them, and then by extension to us, again, they are a royal priesthood. 
And it's kind of interesting because in Exodus uh, 19, we see a similar phrase, but it's a kingdom of priests. And in, in here, he sort of switches the adjective and the noun. He reverses them a little bit. But we are a priesthood. That the, the priesthood has been expanded beyond the family of Aaron and now includes all of those who are in Christ Jesus, who is a priest, the priest, the final priest, our chief high priest, as you see in Hebrews. Such that now we have priestly duties that we can fulfill. We have honor because it is a royal priesthood. But sort of like those infomercials you see on TV, Peter's not done yet. You see, because he says, you're also a holy nation. You have been set apart. You have been devoted to God, he wants them to know. You have, in a sense, most favored nation or family status in God's sight. And as if that wasn't enough, he declares that they are a people of his own possession. God's special possession. We're kind of funny in that we often don't know what we really treasure until it's missing. I remember when I got robbed. My roommate was disappointed that his shark's tooth was missing. I'm not sure why they stole his shark's tooth. But I was really disappointed about the fact that I was the one who lost the most because my CD collection vanished in moments. And at that point in my life, that was probably the most important earthly possession that I had. But you are not like a CD collection. But rather, you are a people. God cherishes a people. God's favorite possession, so to speak, is a people because they have been purchased with, as Peter says earlier in this letter, the precious blood of Christ. That's a lot of privilege that's there in all of these things. Where is Peter getting this? Peter is really drawing on these Old Testament titles for God's people Israel that were given to them in light of their redemption, which means that they were privileged and they were also called to fulfill this. We see this in Exodus 19, for instance. We saw it last week. We're going to see it again. Uh, Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, is what he said to Moses. And so there we have treasured possession, Kingdom of priests or royal priesthood, holy nation. Deuteronomy 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who were or are on the face of the earth. 
So what is Peter doing here? What Peter is doing is applying these titles given to Israel to the Gentile and Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. He's saying that they have become one new people in God, or sorry, in Christ. That they form one new people, one new nation, one new temple, one new priesthood, despite the differences that existed in their backgrounds. Despite differences that would not go away until they saw Jesus. They all didn't speak the same language. They all didn't have the same customs. They all didn't wear the same dress or eat the same diet. And yet, they are all united to Jesus. By Jesus. Jesus is the one that holds these varying groups together as one, despite the forces that often seek to pull His people apart into pieces when we try to put our way and our language and our style of worship and our this and our that and try and divide the body of Christ, Jesus is what really holds it all together despite these things. He is the one who purchased people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language And He is the one who's going to preserve them and keep them until the end. Now, why is Peter saying this? Within the context of chapter 1, but especially when we see chapter 2 here, these people around them who are outside of the church have rejected Christ, and because they have rejected Christ as being of no value, of being worthless... They think his people also have no value and are worthless. And this is what the church was hearing whenever they were revealed as being Christ's people. And so part of what Peter is doing is reminding them that just as Jesus was rejected by men, but was chosen by God and is precious in His sight. You too are being rejected by men, but are also precious in God's sight. Because of the Son. He does not want them to borrow the opinion of the outsiders and make it determinative of how they think about themselves. He wants them to think of themselves as God thinks about themselves. And so because we're united to Christ by faith, we are a privileged people. So secondly, our privilege comes through the mercy of God. See, our our culture here in America today now, we talk a lot about this idea of privilege. And uh, some people like the 
those discussions, and some people don't like those discussions. Uh, but usually the, the framework of privilege in America is that it often has come at the expense of other people. And that's why we have this discussion at times. Okay? Some people have gotten rich, for instance, by oppressing the people who work for them or by taking the resources that haven't belonged to them through fraud and other ways. Not everyone who has privilege, but many who have experienced privilege. It's the uh, 40th anniversary, I think, of the Godfather series. One of them coming out. On AMC, they had the Godfather Marathon on yesterday, and I'm like drawn like a moth to the flame. I can't resist going to 131. My kids aren't here. What can I watch of the series? And if you remember the Godfather saga, Vito Corleone came with nothing. And he became one of the most powerful men in New York. And the way that he became one of the most powerful and influential men in New York was killing, stealing, cheating, oppressing others. He rose to a position of power or privilege because he exploited other people. And with that often comes a sense of superiority over that privilege, because of that privilege, and in a need to protect that privilege. And so you have Michael Corleone, his idol is the family, and he destroys anything that gets in the way of the family. That's how we normally think about privilege in many ways. That's not what we're talking about here in First Peter chapter 2. Our privilege as Christians is not a uh, cause for boasting, but rather is a ground for humility because Peter reminds them, you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were not special until God made you special. You were in darkness, Peter says. You were in spiritual ignorance. You were not a seeker. You know, you were in disobedience and rebellion. And we could bring in all of that great stuff that we see at the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in sins and trespasses, by nature, children of wrath, you know, following the prince of the power of the air, you know, obeying the passions of your will, the sinful desires of your will. And that's who we were. Darkness, night. But we have been brought, we've been called into and brought into the light out of that darkness. We didn't create the light. And in fact, until God works, we don't even want the light. We're quite content with that darkness. But all of this implies we don't deserve the privilege that we have received. 
Speaking of this passage, John Calvin notes, if the Lord had given us light while we were seeking it, it would have been a favor. But it was a much greater favor to draw us out of the labyrinth of ignorance ignorance, and the abyss of darkness. And so we were, we were, in many ways, in a labyrinth, lost until He came and found us and brought us into the light. We see this same sort of imagery that is found in Colossians chapter 1, where Peter, uh, sorry, Paul this time says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so this whole transfer from darkness to light is not of our own doing, but it is the doing of Jesus Christ. Mercy. Peter goes farther to explain this. So, you know, because we have a hard time sometimes with grace and mercy. He, he alludes to Hosea. This idea that we, they who were not a people have become God's people. Those who had not known mercy now have known mercy. And so he's alluding to the passage we read from Hosea chapter 2. Now let's think for a moment about the context of Hosea chapter 2. Much of Israel had forfeited their status by their unbelief and therefore their unrepentant sin. They're pursuing the false gods that were around them. They had rejected the one who had called them to be a kingdom of priests. And so Hosea has children. And he's told to name one of them, not my people. And he names another one, no mercy. Because God was about to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom. Now, at the end of Hosea 2, we see that, that God changes the scenario such that now they receive mercy. Now they have been granted repentance. Now they are once again God's people. Okay? Peter's borrowing this. And he's saying that it is expanded in that in Christ, these repentant Gentiles are joined together with God's people and they receive mercy as part of God's people. It's not that God has two, two groups of people, two nations, believing Jews over here and believing Gentiles over here, but both Peter and Paul have this idea that the two have been brought together, Jew and Gentile, as one people of God. As we saw when Mark read from Ephesians chapter 2, a new humanity, so to speak, a new man of believing Jew and believing Gentile have been joined together to the praise of God's grace. And this mercy we have received is, of course, centered in Jesus. 
It's centered in His incarnation, His becoming man. It's centered in His obedience. It's centered in His death on the behalf of sinners. It's centered in His resurrection from the dead and in His ascension from the, uh, to the right hand of God the Father. It's all grounded in that. It's not grounded in what feeble things we might do. But I think there's a lesson there from Hosea that's implicit. That sometimes our, our privileged place can be forfeited if we don't continue to trust in this chosen and precious Jesus. Peter deals with the reality that of the visible church. And that just as uh, Paul says in Romans, not all Israel was Israel. Not all in the church are in the church. That there will be some who will be revealed to falsely profess in Christ. And so there is the call to persevere. There is a call to um, continue to trust in Christ. To continue to see Him as chosen and precious. uh, To continue to delight in Him. And so we become and we remain the privileged people of Jesus by God's redemptive mercy. And so, hidden in the midst of that, you have what in the world are you here for, in a sense. We are privileged in order to proclaim Christ's perfections. We see here, Peter gets to why God has privileged them, and therefore why God has privileged us by His mercy, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. Gets back to that idea of being a priesthood that he's mentioned before. It's all tied in together. We see perhaps, uh, for instance, rather in Isaiah 43, um, it's starting in the middle of a sentence to, to get how it's connected. To give drink to my chosen people... Okay, that phrase comes up again. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And so we see Edmund Clowney's comment about this text, that he lifts us up so that we may lift him up. Now those two liftings are not the same. He lifts us up in salvation so that we might declare his worth. For our salvation, is what uh, Clowney is getting at. But this word proclaim is an interesting word. We're all familiar with uh, angels or angelos, the noun. Well, there's also a verb form of this. And it's there with a little prefix on it. So in a sense, it kind of means the idea rather crudely, to message out, to proclaim, to make known, to celebrate, all of these sorts of things. And the idea of this proclamation is that it can be both doxological and evangelistic. Meaning, 
It can be worship and call people to trust in the one we sing about, the one we're proclaiming, the one we're making known. And so what we make known is not just the general knowledge of God, but rather that we make known His excellencies. We reveal and talk about His goodness. We talk about His mercy in the context of our worship service. And so worship really ought to center on who God is, what His attributes are, as they have been revealed to us in Christ Jesus for our salvation. I, unlike many pastors you might see on TV, I am not a motivational speaker. I think I would sort of be um, like the Saturday Night Live skit guy, you know, um, warning people about the dangers of being like me. (laughs) Or you'll end up in a van down by the river, you know. The guys on TV are sort of uh, the other side of the coin. They're the ones who are saying, be like me, so that you can live in a mansion down by the river or down by the lake. But they all talk about what you do. They try to motivate you in a way that is completely separate from what Jesus has done and from who you are in Christ. My job is to help you know Jesus so that we are a community of people that knows Jesus and proclaims Jesus. Now that might sound boring, but when we're talking about Jesus, who is perfect, and we talk about his excellencies, then I don't think it is all that boring. Familiar? Yes. Boring? No. I may be familiar with my wife's excellencies, but I'm not bored with my wife's excellencies. So I think what Peter is getting at here is what uh, an author has recently called gospel fluency. We're familiar with linguistic fluency. All of you that I know in this room are fluent in English, reasonably. Some of you have learned a second language. Okay, For some of you, English is your second language. Fluency happens when you stop thinking about how to speak a language and start thinking in the, in the language. Okay? For those of you who have tried to, to learn another language, you know, um, I'm not that great at Spanish. I had a I had a Spanglish experience the other day with a guy on the side of the road. We were talking about cars and uh, trying to communicate with him, and, and um, enough got across. Okay. But usually what you do is you think about what you want to say in English. You cogitate so that you find the Spanish words and stick them together, and hopefully you conjugate your verbs correctly so that everyone understands, and then you speak it. 
And then you hear what the other person says, and in your mind you try and translate that Spanish word that they spoke into the English words you understand, and that's when you're learning a language. When you're fluent, that doesn't happen. You just speak it. And you hear it, and you understand it. You don't have to translate it in your own head. The idea of gospel fluency is that you are just thinking gospel all the time. That you begin to see life uh, not through the grid of perhaps sin and misery, but grace and mercy. You begin to think of life in terms of um, what Christ has done for you and the implications of that. This is not easy. Tim Keller notes, no matter what God does for us, our hearts are quite stubborn and find it very difficult, very hard joyfully and confidently to trust and live by His promises. And so gospel fluency has an obstacle in ourselves, but what it is is trying to see life through the lens, so to speak, of Christ's work for me, of Christ's work in me, and of Christ's work through me. These three perspectives or aspects of his work, of his work. And so we begin to think of our problems, we begin to think of our sins, our afflictions in terms of gospel solutions. We begin to speak in terms of faith and repentance, in terms of our identity in Jesus Christ, in terms of what we've talked about before, that gospel waltz that I've stolen from, um, and now is name escapes me for the moment. Okay, but that idea of confessing our mess, receiving the fullness of Christ, and then walking in the fullness of Christ. This dance, thinking along those lines, so that in our worship, we, we do what it says in Psalm 96, uh, 3, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. We, we learn how to do this by being immersed in a community that speaks the gospel. Worship matters. So that you begin to think the gospel. You are trained or you become, just as uh, people become fluent in a language, usually not through a classroom, but through immersion. Lucette, you knew a few words, right? But it didn't really click until you were here and you had to speak it. Yeah. Okay? In the gospel-formed community, you learn how to think and speak the gospel. You become fluent, and so you are able to then speak to, not just here, but there. As your co-workers experience problems and afflictions, as your neighbors are overwhelmed with life, you are able to speak gospel to them and call them to faith. And so when we're fluent, we more easily proclaim His excellencies to unbelievers. But now here's the rub. Don't forget the earlier part of chapter 2. Not everyone is going to find the words you speak precious. Not everyone is going to find 
the Jesus of whom you speak, precious. And that's okay. Your task is to faithfully proclaim. That's it. You're not in charge of the results. Don't act or uh, respond as if you are and be heartbroken because someone says, no, thank you. Not today. Not ever. So we should expect some people that we speak to to see Jesus' goodness and we expect other people to stumble over the words and person of Jesus. All right. While those who believe are often rejected by men, just like the Jesus they discovered, they find Jesus, well, rather, uh, they discover, my words just got all tied in my head, all right, we discover that those who are joined to Jesus also share in his privilege, even though Like Jesus, we have been discarded and belittled by the world that surrounds us at times. Though we were not a people, we have been made a people. Though we were in darkness, we have been called into light. And therefore, our privilege is not to be used selfishly, but rather our privilege is meant to exalt or declare the goodness and greatness of God and all of His perfections. And so, really... What we ought to hear here is that as a royal priesthood, we're called to walk as one people who is a royal priesthood. We are to walk in worship. We're to walk in evangelism to the praise of His glorious grace. That sounds a whole lot better than living to win basketball games. a whole lot more significant than a lot of the tasks that we think define us. We better pray. Father, it seems like it was too muddled in my head. May it be clear in theirs. May your spirit um, be at work so that we can grasp what Peter is saying to us that we can be, uh, we can arrive at a greater understanding of how we have been privileged in Jesus. But we ask that it would be done in such a way that we receive it with humility, not with arrogance and hardness. Father, help us to become fluent in speaking these things to other people, to speaking them to you so that we can then speak them to others. Help us to really grasp what it means to worship. Help us to grasp the opportunities you present to us for evangelism. So that we could use our privileged status in Jesus to see others receive that same privilege. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.